Maura Healy's historic victory makes her the first woman elected governor of Massachusetts and the first open lesbian governor of any state in the country. But when it comes to the day-to-day dynamics on Beacon Hill, Healy's election is noteworthy for a different reason. When she takes office in January, it will be only the second time in more than 30 years that the governor's office and the legislature will be held by the same party. Is that a recipe for success or for intra-party squabbles, or maybe some of both? I'm Michael Jonas from Commonwealth Magazine. I explored those questions in a recent story you can find on our website, and to help shed more light on what could be in store for state government under one-party rule, I'm joined on this week's podcast by Joan Vanaki, a longtime columnist at the Boston Globe. Joan, thanks for being here. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Nice to be here. <laughs> so first, I just want to ask you sort of what, if anything, you were particularly struck by about the governor's race and what we've seen in the in the days, few days since the election. Um, I mean, to me, this was just sort of a strange race. Uh, and I say that, I think, because Healy's victory was indeed such a historic moment, but it also was so expected and under, utterly without suspense by the time, you know, the election rolled around. Well, what struck me about the race first was that there was no race, as you right. said. I would have thought that, you know, even though she was the strong candidate with the wide lead to begin with, I thought that Jeff Deal would have waged more of a fight. Um, maybe he just didn't have, he didn't have the money, but it just seemed that he went out of his way to not really campaign or take it straight to her in any way or even force a race. So that I was struck by that. When it actually happened, on one hand, it was anticlimactic because we knew what was going to happen, but I did find myself sort of touched by the moment. As you said, I mean, it's historic. I mean, how many women have tried to get to that spot and not made it? And as you said, I'm a longtime colonist, so I've I've been there to watch them. And so that there was a real sentiment I felt that you know she tapped into for, at that moment. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, you know, as people pointed out, or I know uh, Shira Schoenberg, my colleague, pointed out in our story, she you know wore a white uh, pantsuit, which has become you know, sort of a very uh, symbolic uh, gesture on the part of women at these moments to sort of acknowledge, uh, you know, those who've come before, you know, it, it being sort of the, the sort of color of the suffragette movement and other, other uh, moments going, going back, you know, 100 years or more. So she certainly seemed, you know, mindful of that moment too. But, but I guess the, the sort of fact that it was not really unexpected by the time it rolls around means we should have had a, have had a lot of time to think about and get used to what is coming in terms of the dynamic on Beacon Hill. And that's sort of what we're going to talk about a little bit more. And that's this dynamic of one party rule. And just to sort of help listeners uh, who maybe don't have the long view that you and I have from being around for all these years is that um, is that Michael Dukakis left office in January of 1991. And Democrats have had a solid hold on the legislature for the entire 32 years since then, but only held the governor's office for eight of those years with Deval Patrick's two terms. Um, so, so what do you think it will mean to have uh, Democrats uh, once again fully in charge? Well, I hate to say it depends, but I think it depends. Another um, sort of sidelight of this non-race was that we really, I really don't have a sense of what kind of Governor Maura Healy is going to be. I don't really have a sense of what her priorities are going to be. What is the first thing that she's going to tackle? What policy she passionately 
you know, can't wait to get behind. So once we have a better sense of that, of what our exact agenda is, we maybe should reconvene and talk about how it will work out with the legislature controlled by Democrats, because I don't know how she'll align she'll be with the House or with the Senate and whether they'll fight her or whether they'll think that she's on the right track. Right. No, I mean, I think that's completely true. And I think, you know, people keep remarking all along and her campaign, I found they, they sort of took umbrage at points when I think, you know, reporters continually were sort of making this point that there wasn't a lot of substance to it. And they'd point you to their website and different issue pages, but it was it was really mostly painted in broad brushes of generality. So it left it left it left a lot of uh, questions about what's going to happen. Uh, but well, because she was never really engaged in. A, yes, there were position papers, but um, I have to say, I mean, I I looked at the one about the tea because I write a lot about the tea. Um, but I don't think the average person is going on a website to delve into a candidate's issue papers. Usually, there's a lot more conversation. There's a lot more engagement in a you know public forums. I guess they had the two debates or two, right? <laughs> yeah. And neither one really stands out in my mind. Right. So there just wasn't a lot of discussion of exactly where she was going to take the state and wants to take the state. Um, it seems to me that, you know, the T should be a priority. Um, it, it's kind of collapsed on Charlie Baker's watch, although he escaped unscathed as he always does without ever really getting blamed for it. I think I've read that in a few of your columns. <laughs> And um, Mayor Michelle Wu has tried to kind of engage the state on the issue of mass and caste. And I think that will be a really interesting one because we've seen more Healy as attorney general take on, say, the opioid crisis, doing it the way a lawyer does by suing the Sacklers, suing, you know, Purdue Pharmacy. Um, you know, you go to court. Now, as a governor, you have to come up with actual policies that shape how you deal with homeless and uh, you know people fighting fighting addiction so it, it'll be interesting yeah so if we you know we don't know really how this dynamic will play out in fact i spoke uh, for the story i wrote with uh, with senate president karen spilka you know who sounded a very optimistic uh, you know tone which i think is what you'd expect at this point but she too said you know she said ask me in a few months i'll have a better idea um you know, she she didn't have that strong a sense of things. So, but let's just think about or go back a little to the limited experience we do have. Uh, sort of. So more recently, it was with Deval Patrick, and then you have to go kind of way back to Dukakis's years. What's your sense of how that played out? And I guess one just to start off, you know, there has been around in and around Beacon Hill for many years this kind of idea that um, despite what you know, sort of the broader public might think and and what might seem, uh, you know, makes sense that legislative leaders, Democratic legislative leaders, have in some ways preferred this divided government with a Republican governor. Do you think that's been the case? Well, I did read your piece, Michael, and it was a good um, reminder of, of history and everything. And I also saw, I don't remember who, but, you know, people kind of, um, you know, poo-pooed the idea that a Democratic legislature is tough on a Democrat. However, I think there is legitimacy to that. And you mentioned Dukakis. I did was not writing when during his first term, but it is my understanding that he didn't get along all that well with the legislature during his first term. Right. 
And he told me as much when I talked to him this week. Uh, bless his heart. At he just turned eighty nine, still sharp and engaged. Uh, when he did win re-election in eighty two. Um, yes, eighty two. He came back. And he did forge a relationship. He said he started to listen more rather than just talk. As I recall, what I think they did was forge a really strong alliance with um, Bill Bolger, who was then the Senate president, and established sort of a relationship with Bolger. Kind of odd bedfellows in a way, the Brookline technocratic liberal and the South Boston Paul, but they seem to they seem to figure something out. Right. I think um, at the time, John Sasso was a chief of staff, and I think he was kind of the sort of the architect of the relationship and doing a lot of the compromising and finding the middle ground. So you need that kind of, you know, sort of savvy politician to, you know, figure out how you get from the legislature what you need, where is the meeting of the minds. So I think that was the secret, or not so, no, so much, that was the element of success for Dukakis when he returned to the state house. It kind of got mixed up when he started running for president. Yes. But then people were going along with him because they thought he could might just be president. Right. I heard somebody say to me, at least in that one period of time, everybody was auditioning for a job in, in Washington. You know, of course, God, it's such a brutal business. Then he loses, of course, then all the long knives are out. And it's just like... You know, he couldn't, uh, you know, you know, he couldn't get anyone to tell him the, the time of day. Right. But at the end, now, we're, now, am I right at this? At the end, one of the last things he did was he didn't he get a, a tax package passed? Yeah, they did. have. It was a brutal uh, ordeal, uh, you know, to get that through. And yes. actually set the stage for Bill Weld, who then had this revenue stream and was able to, uh, you know, sort of take credit for everything right. being, being cool when it was really the hard work of a Dukakis who came back defeated but didn't give up and worked hard on on behalf to get that to get that happen now my recollection of the weld years is once again he and Bolger had a very good relationship some would right. say perhaps too cozy you know too good singing at a St. Patrick's Day breakfast and making Whitey Bulger jokes and you know all of that but the legislature liked Weld and got along with him and I, I think pretty gave him what he wanted. Right and that's we sort of saw some of that same dynamic with Baker right I mean you know sort of in between them you had you know Mitt Romney who you know I don't think was exactly buddy buddy with folks but uh, and then Deval Patrick. So, I mean, talk a little about the Patrick years. And I know because that's really our only time since Dukakis left that we've had this kind of one party unified governance. And I mean, there's always a danger that, you know, we have a, a sort of sample size of one. And, you know, Deval Patrick had his all his kind of, you know, unique attributes and things. So it's hard to just say, here's the experience of generic one party rule. But what's your sense of how that that played out? My sense of it was that it was a contentious relationship, right? And that it falls into that category of um, the legislature likes to be in charge, and so if there's a Democrat in charge who's the governor, at kind of, they sort of have a, a secondary role, and they're not quite as happy about that. They want to be the the main players, right? And so they kind of gave him a hard time. Now, the thing that he was able to achieve unfortunately, was casino gambling. Right. Which, which, you know, he, well, after a few false starts and he didn't really want that. I mean, it, you know, maybe that 
I mean, that was maybe one of his moments where he kind of learned to kind of do the wheeling and dealing. If you remember, Bob DeLeo, the speaker, desperately wanted it. And I think Patrick kind of basically flipped on the issue. He had not been keen on casinos, but he sort of came around on that. Uh, But he also fought, I mean, again, looking back at what happened, I mean, a lot of the fights really came down to taxes. And specifically, Patrick wanted to raise them and raise them sometimes by a fair amount. You know, it was his really ambitious activist agenda he came in on. And the legislature, you know, either wanted no part in it or they just pared these proposals back dramatically. And it, and it made for a lot, of, uh, a lot of tension between them. Right. So, I mean, you could say it was sort of a policy difference, but it, I'm not, it, I think there was also like a personality thing. I'm not sure that Deval Patrick was that good at, at listening or, you know, playing the game the way they like to play it on Beacon Hill. Right. I don't think they gave him very much. And right. I don't think it, my sense of it was that it was not a really fun, fun, wasn't fun times for them. I mean, your point about, you know, is it sort of policy or personality? I mean, just seems really on point because everybody I talked to for the story kept saying, and, and, and I feel I sometimes get a little, I kind of recoil at everybody's like, oh, it's the relationships. You have to work the relationships. And part, you know, because it starts to smack of, you know, as somebody said to me, I mean, I talked to Tim Murray about it. He certainly was Patrick's lieutenant governor. He was there and saw firsthand what happened. And Al, Jim Aloisi, who was secretary of transportation for a while, said, you know, they kind of put you through your paces. Are you one of them? You know, so it's sort of this idea about relationships to me. Sometimes I sort of say, oh, that's kind of a nod to the kind of insider old boys network type way things run. But I really do think on if you look at it in another way, it's it's you know, it, it really makes a lot of sense. And it's sort of how so many things in the world work and and uh and that's where you know it, it seems like democrats especially dukakis said he you know it wasn't that he necessarily had huge policy difference with the legislature he just was you know kind of arrogant and he said i like to talk a lot not listen and they just couldn't stand that and i think patrick suffered from some of that too so then we come to charlie baker and i'm not sure how much listening he does <laughs> right uh, you know, I did Teflon Charlie. It doesn't matter though, right? <laughs> right. He he managed to forge to get. I don't know. Did he get what he wanted? What did Charlie Baker want? Well, not that much, I think. And 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 I think that's where I think early on. I you know I've had a number of people say they don't foresee the kind of clashes that say Deval Patrick had uh, for for Maura Healy. But you know Patrick even campaigning. I mean, he talked about the need for the state. I mean, I, you know, he, he said there's a lot we need to do to sort of lift people up. And, you know, he was, you know, obviously an incredible speaker and inspiring speaker. But behind that inspiring oratory was kind of an idea of a real activist program of what state government should do. And she has, you know, been kind of the polar opposite of that. She keeps sort of in a nod to Baker saying, you know, I'm just going to you know, fix what's broken and continue what's working, which is sort of like saying not much of anything. And so so I don't know that she's going to clash because it's not clear that she's going to have like these big asks. You know, that's what I think somebody in my story said. You know, the first thing you ask is, well, what's the governor's agenda? What are they going to ask the legislature to do? 
Right. And like on the so-called campaign trail of which there was, you know, very little campaigning and a very short trail. I mean, she did say that she um, liked Baker's tax reform package. And you point, I mean, will she actually advocate for that? And if she does, does she do it just because, I mean, I, I don't know how strongly she believes in it, but it, it could be one of these things where you say that you're for it, know that it's going to get shot down by the legislature, and then it's not your fault. <laughs> right. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And the, the other thing I just wanted to throw out was once Charlie Baker said he wasn't running, that was the first time that you saw really any kind of pushback from the legislature where they kind of didn't give him necessarily what he wanted. So it's just kind of interesting how the power dynamic plays into it. If he had said he was running for a third term, I bet he would have gotten more of what he wanted this this last year. Right, right. Well, and one thing I distinctly remember is Deval Patrick announced that he would not run for a third term very early, I think, uh, as I recall, much earlier. So that, you know, probably didn't help in the kind of power dynamics. Right. So, once you're, you know, sad to say, once you're a lame duck, you're a lame duck. And, and um, the people who thought Dukakis were might be in in the Oval Office were, you know, giving him what he wanted once they knew he wasn't going to be there. It, it just turns on a dime like that. Right, right. Now, do you have a sense? That, oh, go, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you know, in terms of this kind of idea that kind of relationships are the kind of coin of the realm, um, I, you know, again, I had some people say to me, you know, Maura Healy's not been around for 20 years up there, but, you know, she's been in, you know, statewide office holder now for eight years as attorney general. She's not an unknown, uh, you know, uh, figure and has has some of those relationships. Do you think that do you have a sense of kind of a what her sort of way of dealing with people is and whether that, you know, sort of, again, makes for a very different kind of dynamic going in than, say, Deval Patrick had, who was really a complete outsider you know, without time on Beacon Hill? Well, this may not be saying much for me as a journalist, but I don't know what kind of relationship she has. I mean, I don't know what her relationship is with Ron Mariano. I don't know with Karen Spilka. Um, I think, you know, again, like, because we're used to sort of looking at these things sometimes in sort of gender issues, um, I don't necessarily think that she and Karen Spilka are going to see eye to eye on everything. It's already clear that I know Michelle Wu isn't on Beacon Hill, but I, I I get the sense that they don't necessarily see eye to eye on everything. So that's going to be sort of an interesting sort of twist of, of how supportive are you supposed to be of the first female governor? And my guess is probably not that supportive. <laughs> right. <laughs> when it comes right down to it, it'll just be the, you know, the same old, same old. The usual. Yeah. And uh, I mean, the other thing that I, uh, I mean, so to this point about sort of who's in charge, I think that the, the essence of this idea that there could be more tension, not less when it's all one party is the idea that, you know, we, we kind of are all now on the same team. And then the question is, well, okay, well, who's the leader of the team? I mean, that's the simplest way to put it, right? When, when you have divided government, there's no pretense that, I mean, yes, everybody talks about trying to work for the betterment of the state, but there's kind of clear differences. They have different party labels, but now with Democrats, I think that's ultimately what it comes down to and why this arrangement, you know, brings with it some tensions that, that, that uh, again, almost paradoxically aren't there when it's divided government 
Well, since Maura Healy has made so much of her basketball career, um, I, I guess there's a way to be a point guard <laughs> on Beacon right. Hill, and and we'll just have to we'll just have to watch for it. But again, I will just be very interested to see what is the first thing that she champions. It has to be something that she thinks she can win, because you want to start off with a win. Right, early wins. You do you have a sense of what it is? Uh, no, I mean, other than I think she's, I mean, she said, and I think she even gave already one, she was in one national interview, she was on CNN, I think, and talked about the tax package. So I think that's, I mean, that's already sort of been, I don't want to say vetted, but I mean, that's not a new thing she's coming up with. That's really kind of trying to, you know, now we're going to really mix the sports metaphors from basketball to football. That's just trying to get over the goal line, something that has sort of been in play already up there. So seems like that that's a safe sort of first play to make so it's almost i mean you're right that it's not a certainty how that'll play out so that'll be interesting but it'll be almost as interesting to see what's the second thing after that like what's the thing she comes up with you know kind of you know de novo that isn't already kind of in the in the air there the mystery of Mora. <laughs> all right well we'll 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 leave it at that and it uh, the answers will unfold um, well, Joan Benaki from the Boston Globe, thanks so much for talking to us on the podcast. Well, more later when we actually know something, Michael. Exactly, exactly. All right. And thank you all for listening. And we will see you again next week.